Well, the last uh, few weeks, a month and a half or two months, we've been looking at the story of the Bible and just want to take a few moments to kind of get us up to where we are in the scriptures. Uh, we, we started with Genesis 1. We saw how God created a world and the universe, and he called it good. And then he created people. He created Adam and Eve, and after he was done, he said that that was very good. He put uh, images of himself into the Garden of Eden And he said, this is the beginning of what we will do in this creation. Uh, But it didn't take long for Adam and Eve to uh, take what they've been given and to find a way to uh, ruin it and distort it. Uh, The serpent comes into the garden, and while the serpent is there, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve, and he says, really asking the question, is God really good? Is God as good as he says he is? He says, you can't have this fruit that'll make you wise. And so Adam and Eve take the fruit and they say, well, we would love to be wise and we would love to, to really rule ourselves." And so they do. And in doing so, they bring sin and shame and destruction into God's good creation. But none of this was a surprise to God. God knew it was going to happen before he created. And so as he deals with Adam and Eve, he lets us in to just the, the beginnings of his plan to fix that which is broken. And he says to the serpent, he says that one is gonna come from the woman who will crush your head. And we often refer to this as the first statement of the gospel. We don't know what that means. We don't know who this person is. We don't know what they're gonna do and we don't know how they're gonna crush the head of the serpent. But there is a word in there that is a promise for the future that God is going to do a work. And then we move down to the story of Abraham and we begin to see the next stage of how God is going to do that work. And in Abraham, he takes somebody, uh, just a random family. There's no reason that he chooses Abraham. He just chooses Abraham. And he says, go to the land I'll show you and there I'll make of you a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham, which is a binding promise. He can't break it. And we see here that God says, I'm gonna focus in now from all of the world and on a family. And from this family then will come a people. And, and a couple centuries later, we see Abraham's offspring in the land of Egypt. They're slaves. We don't really know if they're actually worshiping the Lord at this point. There's a little bit of, uh, we kind of remember who God is for sure, um, but they've been impacted by 400 years of living with the Egyptians. And God decides it's time to take them out and to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And so he takes Egypt out, or takes Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, uh, through plagues and through opening up the Red Sea, letting them cross on dry land. Uh, he leads them through the wilderness for 40 years. There's lots of story there we can't get into. Uh, but ultimately, he leads them to the doorstep of the promised land. And he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And in doing so, he gives them a law. He says, you now are not just a people, but you are a nation. And here are our rules to govern your nation. Um, So again, God enters into a covenant with Israel and says, this is the way, if you want to get my blessing, uh, that you should administrate your covenant, you should worship me, here's how you worship me. You should run your country, here's how you should run your country. Uh, And we, we see that come into play. Israel enters into the promised land, Uh, And if you were to read the book of Judges, you see that Israel is really bad at following after the Lord. Uh, Israel fails after fails after fails. They repent, and the Lord blesses them, and then they fail again. Um, They ask for a king, and like the nations, God gives them one in the person of Saul. Um, And then ultimately, we get to the person of David. And this 
is where we're going to begin our story today. It's into this reality of, of this nation that is in need of a leader that we begin today. And God makes a covenant with David that is going to establish his kingdom forever. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a pretty good American. And I remember since 1776 that we chucked kings out the back door, right? It's, it's we the people. We get to decide who's our ruler. We get to decide our laws. We get to empower our government. Uh, we're not asking for dynasties of rulers. It's not like, you know, you get one leader followed by their son, followed by their son, followed by their son. And if, if that's really how we feel, and again... Most of us as good Americans probably do. Uh, that makes today's text even more important. So if you've been following some of the events of the news, I'm a kind of a news junkie, so I'm very aware of a lot of what's going on. Uh, the world seems to be a pretty chaotic place at the moment, does it not? I've listened to a lot of news in the last two weeks, and the term World War III has been thrown about and bandied about multiple times. And I remember growing up in the 80s and you know, my parents talking about their time in the 60s and in the 70s, and the fear of World War III as a possibility has been something that, that has just been sitting in the back of our world as we look at political events. But let's just consider a few of the things that might lead to a world that seems out of control today. Um, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a horrific terrorist attack take place in Israel as Hamas seeks mainly just to strike fear and hopefully a response out of the people of Israel. We're in the midst of an 18-month war between Russia and Ukraine, and now in the, and there's a significant debate about how do we even engage that as Americans, right? Like, do we help them? Do we not? Should we not? Does it matter? Um, we don't even know what to do with what's going on, but we see reports of people that are dying left and right. We're still coming out of a pandemic, and the world's economies are in flux because of it. Uh, people are questioning, like, where, you know, you, you listen to the news, it's like, there's inflation in this country, in this country, in this country. And how will we pay for all of the things that we need to do? Um, in the midst of all of that, we see a number of nations positioning themselves uh, against our own nation's interests. And so it's like, well, what's going to happen if all of that comes to pass? We have a president with a low approval numbers, and there are significant questions about his long-term health. We have a former president who is running for president with multiple indictments. We have a Congress that can't act until it gets a new speaker and it doesn't seem like they have anyone in mind anytime soon. And these are just a few of the things that are going on in our world if we were just to take a, a couple quick notes. But you see, every nation is looking for a leader who will lead them out of this chaos. And as we enter into a new election season, there are lots of people who are positioning themselves to say that I'm the one who has all of the answers for you. And it's in the midst of this chaos that many of us are going to be asked to align ourselves with one particular leader or one particular group or another. And again, this is why our text today is so important because you see, as we're being asked to align ourselves with various candidates in our country, if we're Christians, we have another nation that we're a part of. We have another king, actually, who currently sits on the throne, and he is already at work in all of this chaos. And what we're going to find is that because Jesus is king and he sits on the throne above all the other kings, that, that in the midst of all of this chaos, he is the place where we need to rest. He's the place where we sit. And we're going to look at this 
in three ways. We're going to look at our text and see the establishment of God's house. We're going to see the establishment of David's house. And ultimately, the establishment of Jesus' house and what that means for us. So let's look at what the text today says about the establishment of God's house. We see in verses 1 and 2 that David expresses a desire uh, to build a house for the Lord. He says, uh, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king says to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Now, David isn't saying specifically, I want to build a temple for the Lord. But the way he asked this question, even Nathan's response is, everything that's in your heart, go and do. Leads us to understand that David wants to build a house for the Lord that is much like his. And what's behind this desire? First, David has been given rest from all of the enemies around him. And if you follow David's story, uh, he's had to work for decades just to get to the throne. Saul was the king over Israel uh, first, but the Lord rejects Saul very early in his reign because Saul is always disobedient. The Lord tells him to do something and he seems to not be able to do that. There's no trust in the Lord on, on Saul's behalf. And so the Lord says, I reject Saul as my king and I'm gonna anoint a new king. And he anoints David. And again, this is fairly early in Saul's reign. David is fairly young at the time. And so as David now has multiple years, he's probably got 15, 20 years before he becomes king. He's 40 when he ascends to the throne. He has to run for his life from Saul because he's a a usurper of the throne in the eyes of the current king. And so David has to fight to stay alive in order to be the king that God is going to make him to be. And then once David takes the throne, he's not done. David's got other enemies to fight because they're the Philistines sitting just outside of the bounds of Israel, and the Philistines are really happy to attack Israel every time they can. They've already taken the Ark of the Covenant away. The Ark of the Covenant is super important for the people of Israel. It's the, it is the place, the visual representation of where God rests with his people. So if you want to know where God's presence is, the Ark is the place that represents his presence with Israel. And so David leads the armies of Israel against the Philistines, and he begins to have victory after victory after victory. And he, he wins back the Ark. The Lord gives it back to him. They have put it back in Jerusalem, which is the city that becomes the capital. They've set up the tabernacle, which is the place where all of Israel's worship takes place. And now David says, I've had time to establish peace. I've had time to build myself a palace. When he says, I have a house of cedar, he's not just talking about, you know, a three-bedroom house with two bathrooms. He's talking about a gigantic palace. He says, this is the rest that the Lord has given me. And it's interesting, part of this idea of rest also looks back to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 has laws concerning the future kings of Israel, and it says this, it says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, in verse 14, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. And then he goes on to say, and when he sits on the throne in verse 18, he shall write for himself a book of the law, says he will do this so that he may continue long in his kingdom and his children in Israel. 
You see, God always had a plan for there to be a king over the people of Israel. And this king was one who was to be uh, one who focused on the Lord, who loved the Lord, who, who meditated on his law, who followed after him. And this idea of being given rest means that now the king can actually do those things. The rest of the Lord leads to the possibility of long-term peace for the people of Israel because at this point the nation has known nothing but war since, they've been left, since they left Egypt. They've had to fight every, every step of the way against armies that have sought to destroy them. And they finally have been given rest. Second thing that David says here is, I'm living in a house of cedar while the ark remains in a tent. David sees the glory of his palace. He sees everything that the Lord has done. And he wants to, he wants to offer something back to God. David understands everything that God has done for him. He has a sense of, of the, the, the enormity of it. And he wants to do something that will also then make the name of the Lord great. He's like, if I have a huge palace and you just have a tent, what does that say about, one, how we view you, and two, who you are? Now, David may be wrong about that, but his heart is to honor the Lord. And lastly, in his context, as David is the king of an ancient Near Eastern nation, it is actually the job of the king to establish the worship of the people's God or gods. So David is now fully established as the king of Israel. He has had rest from all of his enemies. He's like, now is the time for us to make sure that we are in right relationship with our God. And part of that is, I am going to build a temple that is a place that will draw people to God and they'll be able to worship him. And in this, Nathan, the prophet, now prophets are the ones who sit next to the king and they tell the king how God feels about their decisions. Are you in line with my desires for you? Are you out of line with my desires for you? Nathan hears what he says, and he's like, go for it. But as we read on, God has slightly different plans because the Lord's answer to David is immediate that night. Verse four says, the same night the Lord comes to Nathan and he says, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Would you build for me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in the house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt until this day. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling and all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd them saying, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Why haven't you built me a temple? God says, I've never asked for this. This isn't a necessity. You don't need to do it. And one of the implications I think of this as I think about us today is that there are times that many of us may want to do something for God because we've experienced his goodness. God does something good for us. We're like, Lord, I want to give something back to you. And I think our hearts in that are pure and good. And sometimes no matter how much our hearts are purely inclined to serve the Lord and want to do this thing, the Lord's answer to us is no. Not you or not now. And that doesn't mean that our hearts were wrong. That doesn't mean that we were wrong to ask for it or even to seek after it. Um, you experience, you see this in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the ways I've thought, seen it most is people who have come to know the Lord, have had a tremendous uh, experience with him and their conversion. Their statement is, I wanna go and serve the Lord. I, I wanna go be a missionary to a far off country. And sometimes the Lord says yes and sometimes the Lord says no. 
When Kim and I were, were young, we had come out of college, we were involved with campus ministry, and after graduating from college, we were like thinking, we want to go and serve the Lord, and we want to do so overseas, because we've seen what he's done in our life, and we want to see this happen in the lives of others. And so we started raising support to go to Rome and, and work with the campus ministries there. But that did not work out. About two months into our support raising process, we're like, yeah, this is not going to happen. Um, I don't think that our hearts were badly aligned. It wasn't that I think that God was saying, no, sorry, you people aren't good enough for that. It's this is not my plan for you. This is not my plan for me in this moment. And the same is true for David. So while God says that he wasn't asking for a house, in, thir- in verse 13, he does tell us, though, that one of David's sons will get to do it. So God is not rejecting David's desire to build a temple, um, but he is saying, not right now. And the beauty of this passage is that we know that David obeys because David doesn't build the temple. It's Solomon who builds his temple. And that means that David obeys the Lord, and this sets David apart from Saul. Because Saul's problem as king is he could never really obey the Lord, and and so he was rejected as one who can't obey for one who is a king after God's own heart. And he is obedient to what the Lord asks. And so when God speaks to the prophets to David, we will see that that David responds in faith. Even when David is in in gross sin, when David murders somebody because he uh, had an adulterous relationship with his wife, David's response isn't to defend himself, saying, I'm a king, I could do these things if I wanted to. David's response is to confess. Um, That doesn't mean David's perfect, it just means that David understands the need for faith and trust in the Lord. But this isn't all that God has to say to David because he honors David's desire to establish a house for God with a different promise. His promise is that he would establish David's house instead. This this promise is sometimes referred to as the Davidic covenant uh, because God is covenanting with David. This is a promise that is binding And like all covenants, it starts with the story of how the Lord dealt with David. If we look at verse 8, it says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, the Lord of hosts says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. He is going to make David's name great. This is, this is like the greatest of men on earth. Israel isn't going to just be a random country that exists amongst, amongst all of the other nations. Um, it's small. It's a small group of people. It's not huge. And yet it is a pivotal part of God's plan in all of human history. It's going to be a nation of consequence, and God is going to use them for something great. Ultimately, we are going to see, right, the, the Savior of the world comes from them. He then goes on to say that God is going to provide a place for my people Israel. And this is a restatement of his promise to Abraham because what did God promise to Abraham? He said, I am going to take your offspring, I am going to give them a land, and I will be their God. And so when he says that I'm going to provide a place for you, one, the language is long term. This, is, this isn't like for a week or two or for a year or two or for a generation or two. This is for, I plan to provide a place for you for a long time. 
And this is why I'm setting up a dynasty. And he does this so that, as the text tells us in verses 10 and 11, that they will have peace, that Israel will not be harassed by their enemies. They will not be harassed left and right. They've been fighting for centuries, and the Lord gave them peace through David. The hope is that they would remain at peace. Now, all of this alone would be fantastic, wouldn't it? But at this point, it's only a one-generation comment if we stopped at at verses 8 and 9. But God goes further. He says that I'm going to establish a house for you. He's not talking about a building. He's talking about a dynasty. That the house of David will continue forever. It says, you will have children and your children will ascend to the throne. And I will establish your children's kingdom too. The kingdom will continue. And then if we flip down to verse 15, it says that God's love will never be taken away from your children as I did with Saul, right? The Lord rejected Saul because he was disobedient. He says, I will not reject your children. There will be a king who sits on the throne Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. And the word love here is not like, you know, hey, I really love the Detroit Lions. I also love that I can say that now because they're decent. Uh, It's not even the same as I love my wife or my kids, although that's getting much closer. Um, It's a love that says I will remain faithful to the promises that I make no matter what. This is a covenant-keeping love. The Lord has bound himself, and in binding himself, he says, I will love you in such a way as I will never stop loving you. Amen, that's great. And this is a huge promise because the Lord responds to David's desire to build him a house by saying, no, you won't, but instead, I am gonna build a house for you. Isn't that a wonderful, a wonderful thing for God to do? You seek to honor me, but let me lavish you with more honor. Now, there are a couple things about this covenant to note. One is that it is a one-way covenant. Most covenants are pretty much two-way. There's a sense of like God's like, I'm asking you to, to do this, and if you do this, then I'm gonna bless you, but if you don't, I'm gonna curse you so that you'll repent and then come back so that I can bless you again. Uh, but whether you're getting goodness from God or discipline from God has to do with your actions. Uh, But here, there is no ultimate expectation for obedience. God says, I will establish this forever. He doesn't say, and if you fail in this or if your sons fail, I will stop having a king on the throne. He says, this will go on forever. And the Lord does this again so his people can experience rest so they can experience his goodness. The beauty of the Davidic covenant is it is the next stage in God's plan to save a people for himself. In Genesis three, we talked about it already, but the story of Adam and Eve is like looking at God's plan through a keyhole, right? You just get just a little bit of it and you can kind of see some of the edges around it, but there's so little that you can see. It's blurry, it's fuzzy, we're not fully aware. Then you move on to the story of Abraham and it's like the the door cracks open and you can kind of stick your head around and you can start to see a little bit more of the story. God's sharing more of how he's gonna save all of humanity, all of his people. 
And then you get to the story of Israel and it's, it's focused even more. Now we don't just know who's the person that's gonna be the father of this nation and where might they be, but we see them there and we see how God is gonna deal with them and we see God fulfilling his promises, which then gives us hope today that God will fulfill his promises. And now we see a nation that is formed, a nation that, that is in need of a ruler and God gives them a ruler who loves him and says, here is how I'm going to bring my kingdom to bear. Another way to think about it is like binoculars, you know, we just slowly but surely get more and more and more focus as we look to when Jesus will come on the stage. And each, each one of these covenants gives us more and more focus about how God is ultimately going to bring about the rescuing of his people, the crushing of the head of the serpent. Each one of these is the next stage in that process. Another beautiful thing here is that there will be a house for God. David's desire to serve the Lord comes to fruition. Um, if you follow the story out, he's the one who puts all the, the money together. He gets all the stuff and he sets it aside and he tells his son, here's all the stuff and the plans. You just need to do it. The Lord does grant his heart and his desire. Now, one thing to note is as God makes a covenant, he does say that he will discipline David's kids, if they do not follow after him, he says, I will be a father to him. And when he does wrong, there's gonna be punishment. I will punish him with a rod, but I will not take my covenant-keeping love away. My love remains. And that means that there's always hope. But there's more to the story. If you follow the story of Israel further, you're gonna see a story full of sadness. Because two generations later, the kingdom of Israel splits. There are 12 tribes and 10 of them rebel against the David's son, his grandson actually, but against one of David's children. And only one other tribe stays with them. The other 10 go on their own. And within a couple hundred years after that, in the 700s, they're taken over by the Assyrians. And for the most part, they're no more. They intermix and they do whatever. They, they, they become part of the Assyrian Empire and they essentially disappear from the story. The southern kingdom persists for another couple hundred years, but by 576, the remaining two tribes are taken into exile. And when they're taken into exile, there's no longer a king on the throne. Sounds like a problem, doesn't it? Well, flip to Psalm 89, if you can, or turn in your phones over there. Psalm 89 is a long meditation on the reality that though there is a promise to David, the promise doesn't seem to be in effect any longer. The psalm begins, says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said the steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you'll establish your faithfulness. You've said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever. I will build your throne for all generations. The Lord is very clear in his promise that he says this. And the psalmist as they start is perhaps reminding both himself and the Lord of these promises. You said this to David. You promised this to David. And when you hear the word faithfulness over and over again, because we, we're not gonna read the whole psalm. This isn't on Psalm 89. 
Uh, but if you read that, you're gonna see the word faithfulness, 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 over and over and over again. Because what the psalmist is doing is saying to God, if you are faithful, you made a promise, where is the king? Where is the king that you promised that would always be on the throne? The psalmist is thinking about 2 Samuel 7. In verse 19, it tells us, he says, you gave a vision to Nathan, uh, to your godly one. It says, I have, a gra- I have a granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. In verse 30, it says, he's, again, you, you can see the language that mirrors what we've just read. If the children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Again, the psalmist is reminding God of what it means to be faithful. But then we get to verse 38, and he says, but now you have cast off and rejected You're full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. The psalmist then says, so where is your faithfulness, Lord? Have you kept your promise, God? That's a huge thing to raise before the Lord, isn't it? God does have a response to this complaint, and I think the complaint is honest. I don't think the psalmist is wrong for going to the Lord and saying it doesn't seem like things are the way they're supposed to be. God's response to that complaint is one that the psalmist does not get to see. Because you see, the reality is there is a king in the line of David, and that king reigns. And that king continues to reign today. His reign is eternal. Because he's already died and he was raised and he sits at the right hand of God. Because in establishing David's house, God was looking to a time when he would establish Jesus' house. His kingship. And this is what it means when we say that Jesus reigns today. Because if you flipped into the Gospels, Jesus is fully aware of his kingship. He's not someone who stumbles into being the Messiah. He is aware that he is the anointed one forever. And really, the term Messiah literally just means anointed one. Now, David was a Messiah. He was God's anointed king. Uh, But Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who fulfills all of those things. He fulfills the promise in 2 Samuel 7. Because in... uh, All through the Gospels, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is here, that I am the one who brings in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Matthew, in the beginning of his Gospel, gives us this huge lineage, and oftentimes we look at that lineage and we're like, why in the world is he putting all of those names there? I mean, it's a great song for someone to write, but why in the world do we have all of these different names? And the point that Matthew wants to say is, if you're wondering if Jesus has a right to be the Messiah, here's where it is. Here's Abraham. Here's David, here's Jesus, and there is one unbroken line all the way through. Jesus came to establish a kingdom, but it was not in the way that anyone expected. He came as the king who would die for his people in order to save them, not one who would conquer the Romans. And when he left, he said, I have to go. I'm going to go to the Father, and he's going to set me up at his right hand. 
And again, that's the language of rule. Jesus says, I go back to the Father in order to rule. Jesus rules today. So what does all that mean for us? I mean, we aren't Jews. It feels like this is a Jewish promise, right? So how do we fit in if we're not Jews? First, if Jesus is the king in the line of David and he rules now, then those who embrace the Davidic king are who God's chosen people are. And so when you think of the story, again, the story of Abraham is about how the the nations will be blessed. Used to sing a song, you know, Father Abraham and many sons, I am one of them and so are you. How are we that? Through the work of Jesus. We all share the same king. Everyone who has embraced Jesus as the Davidic king, as the Messiah, and his work on the cross are the people of God, chosen and set apart. We aren't necessarily looking for God to establish another actual Israel on earth, and I understand that that can be a very hard thing to to say, because on some level, God still has plans for the people of Israel. But now the whole earth has become Israel. God is taking his rule to the ends of the earth. And we know that Jesus is far better than every single king that Israel ever produced because we have the story of every one of the lineage of David and it was failure after failure after failure after failure after failure because they weren't the the final and proper king. We now have a king who will never need to be uh, punished or disciplined with a rod of iron because he's perfect and he sits on the throne. He honors God, but he is also God himself. Second thing is, is that if Jesus sits on the throne, then our ultimate political landing place is in Jesus and not in any other ruler. Because the truth is, is that there's not one ruler in this world that isn't part of the chaos that we're experiencing or the world that's out of control. All of us are broken and sinful and messy, even the ones who know God. And isn't it great to know that as the world spins out of control, that there is a king who is above it all, and that he is the one who is bringing about all of these things. There's not one thing that happens that is out of his desire, out of his knowledge, out of how he is working out his plan, but that he is bringing together all of these things. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that Uh, We can't have opinions about how to control the chaos, right? Because we have to live in this world uh, and we have to to figure out how to honor God and all the things that we do. But it does mean that we're not going to get another Messiah who's gonna make it right. And anyone who promises that they're the one who are gonna do that is probably giving you a line. And it also means that we need to be careful when we speak to others who might have different positions than us about how to solve the problems in our world because the hope is, is if we're all following after Christ, that the, the answers that we have might have different focus points and different things, but they're all not enough because only Jesus's authority is going to be enough. And there's freedom in that. Thirdly, where's the room for lament? When we see a world out of control Uh, maybe we begin to ask the question, much like the psalmist in Psalm 89, if you are ruling, Jesus, 
what in, in the world is going on? When we see picture after picture in our news feeds of death and destruction, whether it's the war in Ukraine, terror, terrorism in Israel, whether it's losing a friend or a family member to cancer, whether it's suffering with chronic illnesses, Psalm 89 is a great place to start because it gives us a voice that says, Lord, if you're in control, if you're ruling, what in the world does this rulership look like? How do we walk this out? How long, O Lord, the psalmist ends with, how long will you allow us to experience your absence and the king's absence? Now, I know that there's nothing new going on in our world. I say this to my mom all the time. Um, you know, the world's not now suddenly going to hell in a handbasket. It always has been. Um, and yet, there are times, at least to me, that it feels more crazy. And so where do we find hope in the midst of that? Let me offer two very short solutions as we close this morning. The first is that we have a king in Jesus who not only rules, but he suffered on our behalf. That he died so that we might live. And so any of our struggles with any of these things that feel out of control, as we suffer the brokenness of this world, as we suffer from sin in this world, as we suffer consequences of our own sin, we know that Jesus experienced everything that we did and yet he did not sin. And so he can understand us. He knows what it was like. It doesn't mean that your struggles are over but it does mean that you can have hope in the midst of them because you are not alone in your struggle. God experienced that same struggle too as he who is perfect put himself into a broken world and experienced all of that brokenness and ultimately bore it on the cross. And the second is that there's going to come a day, hopefully soon, where the king will return and set everything right. Now it's been nearly 2,000 years and we're still waiting for Jesus to come back and, and set everything right. And who knows, it might be another 500 years before he comes back. But Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he's gonna make everything new. So as we pray with the psalmist, we, we actually mirror the prayer of John in Revelation when he says, Jesus, come back soon. Revelation asks the question multiple times, how long, O Lord, will you allow your people to suffer? And the answer in Revelation is, until I return. A way to illustrate both of these is kind of the difference between D-Day and uh, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. Uh, D-Day was the, the day in which the Allies got their foothold in World War II in Europe. They took beaches in France and were able to actually now have a place where we could put all of our troops but D-Day was not the end of World War II in Europe. It was the beginning of the end. If you were in occupied France on D-Day, your situation may not actually have changed because you hadn't been rescued yet. You hadn't been freed yet. But you could see that there were people fighting on your behalf, people that were suffering and dying on your behalf so that ultimately you will be free. There was hope for better days while you waited because you saw the work that was going on. But then, there was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. Then, you were able to return home 
There was hope for a future where you could rest because you could go and you could rebuild your home. It may have been destroyed, but there was, there was something that was new that could come. You could rebuild your home. You could replant your crops. You could rebuild your cities. And you could rebuild your families. See, the promise to David is a promise to us as well. For all the history of Israel, they had kings that failed them, but now as Jesus rules, there's a king who does not fail, a king who sits on the throne, a king who unites Jews and Gentiles together into one family and one kingdom, a king who knows our suffering intimately and cares deeply about it and meets us in it, and a king who will return to give us rest from all of our enemies forever and ever. And may he come soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus sits on the throne. We thank you that you've placed him there, that you've honored him and raised him up. Lord, we don't always know what that looks like. And so may we be people who know how to lament the broken world, the sin in the world. And yet also may we be people who trust in you knowing that you will bring about all things for your good and your glory and ultimately for our rest. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.